0: three days later out of the grave and in that is where we get this idea of this new man that means that what we've done in the past is irrelevant because that's no longer who we are however what we do after that point is we begin with a sanctification process that is where the holy spirit leads us into all truth and we begin to change our fleshly body if you will because we are made up of three parts spirit soul and body God made us that way, we have to deal with all three of them. That is why he talks about here that we don't walk in the flesh and we don't walk according to the flesh. We do walk in the flesh, excuse me. We don't war according to the flesh. In other words, we could go about this stuff with this natural mindset. Well, how am I going to do this? Janet was talking about this this morning in Bible study. When things get tough, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to do this? It's always how am I going to instead of like, okay, God, how are you going to take care of this? That's the problem, is that when things get tough, we turn to natural ways of dealing with them, and we try to figure out something in order for us to get there, but the problem we have here is we're supposed to turn to God. The last thing we do out of like our last resort, I don't know what else to do, God, you're going to have to take this for me, because I can't handle it. We should start there, because when he's taking it, why would we ever take it back? I mean, think about it this way. All right. Now I've seen this, I've been in ministry for a long time. I've seen people they they'll come up on a Sunday morning, they'll bow down here in front of the steps or something, or you know, wherever, and they'll give their hearts to Christ, and God has removed that sin from them, and they're so passionate about it, and they love the Lord. But then the life starts creeping back in. The the analogy I use, if you ever known somebody who's been a lifelong smoker, always says they want to quit, but just never been able to do it, right? And it's hard. I mean, I'm not trying to negate it, it's not easy. But then they spend like four weeks or six weeks in the hospital. Well, what can't you do in the hospital? You can't smoke. It's forbidden. Okay? And so you would think, hey, you've just gone a month, month and a half without a cigarette and you didn't die. Congratulations. Okay? And what's the first thing they do when they step out of them hospital doors? Why? You've come this far. Why stop now? But that's what we do. As we try to come up with these practical applications of how we can do things, instead of taking things the way the Bible says. And so in this, we need to begin to understand, and this is what we'll be looking at, is how do we do war on this earth, spiritually speaking? Because we don't go about it the same way as somebody else would that isn't born again. We take things from the spiritual world, knowing that the spiritual world is the reality. I was talking about this this morning a little bit. As you guys know, I like science. I'm kind of a sciencey geek. Um, I, I tend to look into this kind of stuff. And in the last decade, science, we, we've always lived in a three-dimensional world. That's what they've said. And then uh, a few years ago, they realized that there was a fourth dimension, Okay, and also discovering that time actually has physical properties. And now scientists are saying that we actually live in a 10 plus dimensional world. We can only process three to four of them. And the words that they use is is almost like we are living in a digital simulation where this isn't the reality. The things we can't see are the reality. You know what that lines up with? The Bible. Who would have thought? And so looking, getting into that spiritual idea of where we are. So once we understand who the new man is, that he is full of the Holy Spirit, he can be baptized in the Holy Spirit, that he can walk in the same power and authority that Jesus did and that the apostles did and that everybody that's come after them did, that we have a responsibility on this earth and it's called the ministry of reconciliation. That we are the ones that go and tell the world, hey, guess what? Jesus died for those sins. Those have been paid for. If you're willing to accept that, you won't have to pay for them. He took care of it. Some choose it. Some do not. Okay? It's our choice. So in understanding all of that and getting past that part, it's like, okay, now what do we do from here? How do we do battle? How do we take care of this spiritual warfare? And the first thing that every believer has to be able to answer are these four questions. This is what we've been working on. Who is God, number one? Who is he? Not who do I think he is. You guys realize that most of the world has created God in their own image. When I'm talking to people who say they don't believe in God and I ask them to describe it, they'll give me some obscure description. I said, well, guess what? I don't believe in that God either. The number one, or the number one is that. Number two is who am I in relationship to God? If he is the creator of all things, ruler of the universe, it's important to know what your standing is with him. And if you are born again, you have been made new. You are now a son or daughter of God. That standing is important. Have your kids ever walked into your house cowering of whether they should be able to get in the fridge or not? No. What do they do? They kick down the door, they rip open the fridge, and they empty it for you. That's what they do. Okay? For those of you who have had the privilege to get your children out of the house, what do they do when they come home? They kick down the door, they rip open the fridge, and they empty that baby for you. Right? They don't ask permission. Oh, could I have a soda? No, they'll tell you when you're out of soda so you can go buy some more for them, right? All right, but that's the relationship we have with God. He says, enter boldly into the throne room of grace that you can find peace when you need it. That's, that's important. Number three, how do I worship Him? Oh my goodness. I mean, if a part of our lives is not worship to God, we ought to know how we do it. And I realize we've not gone in depth with all of these, but it's important that we understand these. But the fourth one that we have been focused on is who is my enemy? And the number one thing that we've got to understand is who it is not. It is not those sitting across from you. It is not those on the other political arena, across the aisle, whatever the case may be. It is not those who persecute you. Those are not your enemy. The devil, the Satan, all of that, those are his, that's who our enemy is, and that's who we deal with. And so we've been looking at a couple of th- different things. First of all, what is his name? Because it's not Lucifer, it's not Satan, it's not even the devil. Those are all descriptors of him. Okay. So we had to understand that because we want to understand what the Bible says about it. Secondly, is what does he look like? And the little dude with like horns and a pitchfork is not what he looks like. It called him the anointed cherub in Ezekiel. And it says that he was created uh, with the angels and that he is the anointed cherub. And therefore, the description of the cherub it was weird. Don't get me wrong, but that's likely what he looks like. Four wings, four faces, hooves like a cow. I mean, that's that's a weird looking guy, but still not... Red dude with pitchforks. See, the thing that we've got to understand, and I talked about this last week, is that our church world today, the Western church, gets most of what we think of heaven, hell, angels, demons, all of that, really has been foundational between two books is what started it. The first book being Paradise Lost. It was a series of poems written by a guy back in the uh, 1600s. And a lot of what we believe today has come out of that. The other one, specifically dealing with hell and some of the other stuff, comes from Dante's Inferno, written in the 1300s. Now you're thinking, okay, well, how do those two books have any impact on us today? It really does, because out of those two things come a lot of ideas, which are our movies and our current books write about. And that is really where we get our theology. Okay? Let me give you an example of this. How many of you guys have heard the term, God works in mysterious ways? Right? Right? We've all heard it. Find it in the Bible. Because God was never mysterious. He was always predictable. He always did what he said he was going to do. You know who's mysterious? Your children. Right? Those are who are mysterious. God is very predictable in how he, he reacts. How he responds to faith. It's always a pattern that he follows. So that is not a biblical statement. But yet it has gotten into our culture so much that we just say things like that and never actually think like, well, is that even true? You know, How about this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what the Bible says. Because he says, In your weakness, I am made strong. So he might. And if you're leaning on him, you won't have any trouble. So when we look at this, we've looked at these three things, understanding who he is. The one I wanted to look at today and focus on is when did Satan fall? Okay? Last week we looked at why he fell. But today we're going to focus on when he fell. So why did he fall? Well, let's look at this again Isaiah 14. Verse 12, and remember, as we do this, before we get into that one, Acts 17, 11. I cannot tell you this enough. Pull that up there. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. That is your job. You listen to what I have to say, and then you go home and you search the scriptures to see if what I said is true. Because guess what? I could be wrong. It's happened twice in my life, so it could happen a third. Not likely. That was a joke. Tough crowd. Thanks for playing. Okay. So here's the thing. You guys, that's your responsibility. You've got to do this. What I'm going to present to you today is a minority view as far as the theological world goes because a lot of people cannot answer this question or do not try. And even when I present it as I'm going to present it to you today, a lot of them, because of their presuppositions and all the things they've ever heard about the devil and Satan all this other stuff, creeps in like, well, no, that can't be right. Well, if we're going to search the scriptures, you tell me if I'm wrong. Here we go. Why did he fall? We looked at this last week, Isaiah 14, starting in verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Remember, Lucifer means light bearer how you are cut down to the ground you who weaken the nations for you have said in your heart I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north I will ascend above the heights of the cloud I will be like the most high what was his problem he liked himself a whole bunch it says in Ezekiel because of your beauty we'll look at that later that you fell and you all this entered into his heart but what we began to look at is why he fell was pride. Let's put it that way, simple. We looked at a bunch of scripture that talks about pride. Not like, hey, I'm proud of my daughter because she hit a home run or anything like that. I mean this puffing up, arrogant, I am greater than what I am. Remember that Lucifer, when we looked at him, he was what we would consider the worship leader in heaven is what we say. The reason we say that, we don't know it for sure, is because he had these instruments that were a part of him is what it says. And so when it talks about it said it the abundance of his trading, we'll look at that again. here this week but I'll I'll just explain it briefly is that what belonged to God was the worship but it was flowing through him and he was keeping a part of that back from God for himself how great I am and so in doing that that's what the abundance of your trading means and I use this illustration if we plugged in an extension cord do we thank the extension cord for providing power it is simply the conduit of which the power goes but the power goes back to the source that's where the glory should belong. following me same thing in our lives We fall into this trap all the time If you trace every sin mentioned in the Bible uh, down to its roots pride will be at the base of it every single one of it So in this in verse 13, it says I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north What I began to explain to you is what your ideas of Eden are are not correct Because Eden, yes, it was a lush garden, but in it was, this was the domain of God. God created three grouping. Well, I shouldn't say he created two groupings. Himself, he didn't create himself. He was there, All right. He created the angels, and we'll see when later. And then he also created man, all three groups being in Eden. This was the domain of God. What was the idea that God was having? He was tabernacling among his creation, which is what it says that when Jesus came to the earth, he tabernacled with them. And what's the ultimate plan that he's going to do? He's going to return and do what? Tabernacle with his people. This was the plan from the beginning. Now, Man screwed this up. We'll get into that in a bit. But the bottom line is this, is that Eden where it was the domain of God. We always think he's floating around somewhere up there in heaven. No, he was on the earth in Eden. The mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north was where he was at. And I will show you examples of that in the scriptures today. We see in Psalm 48, verse 1, it says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. In Mount Zion, on the great sides of the north, the city of the great king. Now, this is talking about Jerusalem. But it's the same language that is used here in Isaiah. Because we believe that Jerusalem was very likely where Eden was. It was the land that was promised to Abraham... And so because of that, this is why we think that, that this is the domain of God. This is where God reigned. What did he do when he had them build the tabernacle? It was now a way for him to once again tabernacle with his people. Same with the temple. He was in the Holy of Holies, so the only the high priest could get in there, and nobody else could. So he couldn't be with everybody, but he was there. Now, when were these uh, angels created and stuff? Because that's important to understand. In Job 38, verse 4, it says, where were you, this is talking to Job, God talking to Job, he's getting on to him, when I laid the foundations of the earth. Okay, now when did he do that? In the beginning, right? All right. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determines his measurements? Surely you know, or you stretched the line upon it. Let me tell you, if God's having this kind of conversation with you, you've done screwed up. All right, he's getting pretty sarcastic. Oh, yeah, where were you at when I? Okay, go on. Verse 6. To what were its foundations fastened, or who laid his cornerstone? Verse 7, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars is a name given for angels. Right? You need to understand that. It mentions them uh, uh, before. In Isaiah uh, thir- uh, verse 14, verse 13, it says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Morning stars, stars of God. It is referring to these angels. In other words, he is exalting himself up. When were they created? Sometime before the cornerstone was laid on the earth. They watched it happen. When was that? We don't know. Was it the day before? Was it the same day? We don't know, but we know that they were there. Now here's another thing that you need to understand. Because in Eden was the domain of God. This is where his kingdom reigned. And I will show you more of this later. But we need to look at this and understand what I'm talking about. In Psalm 82 and verse 1, here's what it says. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. What gods is he referring to? Well, we need to understand this. When we get into the Hebrew, you guys know what the Hebrew word especially especially Genesis 1, for God is. It's Elohim. Okay, we've talked about that before. Elohim is the Hebrew word. you got Elo for God. I am any makes it plural most of the time. Elohim is God. So that verse 1, verse word is Elohim. Stands in the congregation of the mighty. But he judges among the gods. You know what word is used there? Elohim. It's the same word. Which tells us something. Because this is not referencing God like he is. This is something lesser. This is actually referencing the angels. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the angels is another way that you could put it, the Elohim. You guys, what he's doing here is it's this, this throne room set up. I know it's weird, but you've got to trust me on this. It's the same work. What, been, we, what happens too often is we oversimplify something. Okay, How many of you guys heard the term Logos and Rama? Right. It's in the New Testament. We see that Logos is the written word of God. Rhema is the spoken word of God. That works great until you realize that in John 1.1 1, 1, in the beginning was was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. That word being Jesus. But that word in Greek is Logos written word. So was Jesus a written word on a page? Obviously not. That means our understanding of it is too simple. He's following me. We throw these terms out like we know everything about them. So he stands in the congregation of the mighty. Picture him on his throne with all these angels around him and his creation. Okay? Now look, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 18. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing on his right hand and his left. And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab, king of Israel, to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner, and another spoke in that manner. So who's speaking? It's these angels. Okay? Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit. Dealing with Ahab, right? King Ahab, Jezebel, horrible people, terrible king in Israel, but here you've got God talking to his creation, his angels about how they are going to execute something. You guys see that? This is the picture that you should get of what Eden looked like. God did not need creation to make himself complete. He is whole. But he decided he created angels and what were the point of the angels? They were to be ministering spirits unto the pinnacle of creation which is mankind he created mankind for one purpose be fruitful multiply and fill the earth and you'll see that here in a minute so what I'm trying to get you to understand is that in Eden is where God and the angels and ultimately Adam and Eve were at you guys with me so far Because I'm just laying a foundation let's look at the creation event let's jump into Genesis chapter 1 alright it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, okay? So the first thing that God created was time, that's the beginning, heaven, space, the earth matter. And from this, he will create all things. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, let me put this in perspective so you can understand this, is that, um, we're ultimately looking at why Satan fell, and a lot of people will put it, it was called the gap theory, and there are tons of theories out there of the when Satan fell, and they're always trying to make something fit, we're just going to stick with the scripture, but they'll say there's a gap of time between verse 1 and verse 2, that does not line up scripturally, it does not work. But when it says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep, the analogy I can give you to get an understanding of what this means in the Hebrew, it'd be like if you were going to build a house and you purchased all the materials that you needed for your house and they dropped them off that big lumber pack right in there in the front yard where the house is going to be built. Everything that you need is right there, but it is formless and without void. You have to put the pieces together to make it into a house. Does that makes sense? You guys with me? Okay, let's go on. Then God said, verse 3, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. That's day one of creation. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Then God made the firmament, he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and so the evening and the morning were the second day. Now we're not going to get off into some of the details here just for the sake of time. Then God said, verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the gathering together of the waters he called seeds. And God saw that it was good. So what did he do? There was land there. He pulled all the seeds together. Now we have land masses. Uh, verse 11, the God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the, the herb that yields seed and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. Just like we see today, right? If you ever planted corn? What does it make? More corn. It's after its own kind. If you ever plant corn and you get watermelons, call me because we're both going to be rich. All right, let's move on. And the earth brought forth grass and herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, so the evening and the morning were the third day. That's day three. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs, seasons, and for days, and for years. I'm going to pause there. Okay, because I want to make sure we understand that we talked about this when we talked about the feast. We think of signs, times, and seasons as like, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's 1130 on a Tuesday, and then, well, it's still spring technically, but it feels like summer a lot of days, okay? So what, that's not what it's necessarily talking about. Yes, those things are true, but it's the Moedim, the appointed time, this calendar that God set up because they are all hinging upon this. It's the same word used for those feasts that the Jews followed, Right? Passover, first fruits, all of that kind of stuff. The reason that's so important to understand is that God followed that calendar when Jesus appeared the first time, and he will follow that same calendar when he appears the second time. So, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Now you notice how the stars is distinct from the greater light that rules the day. So according to the Bible, is our sun a star? It is not, and scientists cannot figure out why our sun is so predictable and so consistent when all the other stars they study seem to be unpredictable and inconsistent, maybe because it's not a star. Let's go on. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind. You notice it keeps saying that, right? Because fish make more fish. They don't ever make birds. Sorry, Mr. Dawkins. Okay. And every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed him, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Those are distinction. Be productive and make more of you. You tell your children that, right? Like when you get old enough and you get married, get you a job, make you some grandbabies. That's the rules. Okay. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the season, let the birds multiply on the earth, so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Here's the pinnacle of creation, verse 26, then God said, let us make man. In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Okay, now why is he giving them dominion over everything on the earth? He's doing that because he is put in charge of it. In other words, that mankind created is greater than the animals, it's greater than the seeds, it's greater than everything. That is why we call it the pinnacle of creation, is mankind. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In case you were confused, yes, there is really only two. Not going there. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, right? Tell your kids. Fill the earth and subdue it. They don't have to do that part. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. For you hunters and fishers, you, like, you want this verse, right? Stand out there at the river and start telling them fish, jump in the boat. <laughs> Let me know how that turns out for you. Verse 29, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. Uh, To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So, We have everything. They're a bunch of vegetarians back then. It's not until Genesis 9, after the flood, that God says, I now give you permission to eat meat. Can I get an amen? Amen. I mean, that flood was worth it if we can get some barbecue spare ribs once in a while. Is all I'm saying. So let's look at these six days of creation here. I've got an image. What we have is in day one, you have the creation of the stuff. It's two different words used as created. The first one meaning that out of nothing was created. The second one is out of what he created. In other words, after day one, everything he needed to create everything else was there. He didn't need anything else. So in day two, you see the water. In day three, you see the dry land and the plants. So you've got, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He creates water. Now what you'll notice is day four, five, and six, he will begin to fill the things that he created on days one, two, and three. All right? He creates the sun, moon, and stars. On day four, on day five, the sea and flying creatures, and of course, on day six, land animals and man. And yes, in case you didn't know, dinosaurs did exist with mankind. The fossil record proves it. Evidence all over the world proves it. Don't believe everything that you read in National Geographic. Is that still around? I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. So this is the creation account. Now, what did you notice that was not mentioned? Eden. So was the whole earth the garden of Eden? The answer is no. How do I know that? We're going to read chapter 2, not all of it. Let's look at verse 1. Thus the heaven, and remember, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you've got how God did, and you've got a quick, you know, a Reader's Digest version synopsis in chapter 2. Verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth, and all the host of them were finished. God was done. We know what he did on the last day. He rested. And on the seventh day God ended his work, and he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day, he sanctified, because it, in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And don't, don't confuse that word rested. He wasn't tired and needed a nap. There's a principle that he's doing here. This is the history of the heavens and the earth that were, uh, or when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God did not cause it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the, till the ground. So there's been no rain. We don't see rain until the flood of Noah. Okay, But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Farmers, don't you wish that still was around? Wouldn't that be nice? And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the ruach, the spirit of man, and man became a living being. Now watch verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So after he made man, what did he do? He planted a garden, and he took the man whom he created and put him in the garden. What was the garden? It was the domain of God. This is where God's at. This is where the mountain of God is. If you guys ever wondered why there are pyramids and ziggurats all over the world in every single culture, those are there because it is a mimic of the mount of God what it was. This is where God ruled. In this ancient time, the Ugaritic language and stuff from, uh, from uh, over on that side of the world is that their belief or that the domains of the gods were always in mountains near streams with gardens. Okay? So this is nothing new. So what do we see here? When was the Garden of Eden planted? It was on day six. It was not the whole earth because God gave him a job to do. His job was to expand the domain of God, the kingdom of God, to, he was supposed to work the ground, okay, gave him a job, be fruitful, multiply, and you are to expand the garden. And so it would become the whole earth. The earth, earth was not in chaos, but there was one specific area, we believe it was Jerusalem, we don't know for sure, that where God was, and he put his man. You guys with me so far? So now we know where Eden was, or at least when it was put into place. How do we know that? Because the Bible just told us, Right. Doing a little deductive reasoning, we can see that it was in day six. Now, that tells us this, but doesn't tell us that when Satan fell, right? So man's created, he's in the garden, God is there. We know that he would come down on the cool of the day, right, and walk with man. He was around. So do you think Adam and Eve saw angels walking around? Yeah, you bet they did. Right, Because their eyes were still open to the spiritual world, that reality that you and I don't have right now because we don't see that way. Because the same thing happened to them that we are after they sinned, which you'll see in a minute, is that, that all went away. Now, so here we are, they're seeing them walk around. Now let's look at Ezekiel 28 because now we've got to figure out, okay, this Lucifer figure, Satan, Beelzebub, whatever you want to call him, where was he and when did he fall? Ezekiel chapter 28. Verse 11, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. Now watch what it says here. You were the seal of perfection. Now, this is referring to Lucifer. This is talking to him. This is the power behind the, the prince of Tyre. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, right? So it's talking about, you know, you can see why things get to their head, right? You ever met that really, really attractive woman that just knows how attractive she is and... You know, it's kind of annoying and things like that. That's what it, this is going on here. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. So where was he? He was in Eden. How do we know that this isn't talking to a man? This dude would have been dead a long time ago, right? Eden was thousands of years before this. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardius, topaz, diamond, barrel, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you for the day on the day that you were created so he's created right hadn't always been he was created you were the anointed cherub who covers is what we're talking about he's setting him aside he had a responsibility i establish you who did that god did you were on the holy mountain of god okay pause there now where was he he was in eden but he was on the holy mountain of god so where was that in eden following me he was there you walked back and forth and missed the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Did God created everything in perfection. Yes, he did. Until iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your training, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. Where's the mountain of God? It was in Eden. So he was there. He got kicked out, right? And I destroyed you, O covering tear from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, think about this. In the description we have here, all these things were. You were perfect. You were beautiful. You had all these stones as your covering. You were in Eden. You were on the mountain of God until iniquity was found in you. And then as a result of that, he gets thrown out of the garden, Right? Now, can anybody think of the only example in the Bible where it talks about Satan being kicked out of the garden? Because there's only one, and it's in Genesis 3. It's where you see the fall of man. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now stop there. Who is this serpent? Because a lot of people will say, well, this is just some snake, and they'll make something up. Like, all the animals talked back then, right? Now, there's no evidence of that, and there's nothing in the Bible about that, but that's one of the things they say. And then later, you'll see that he says, on your belly, you should go and eat dust all the days of your life. Well, snakes, at one point, had legs, and then God chopped the legs off of them, okay? That's not what this is saying either. And the other thing they'll say is, because he went to Eve, that's why women are afraid of snakes today, and men aren't, okay? I know some men. I happen to play golf with one of them who are deathly afraid of snakes. And it is funny when you see one with him. Very funny. Yeah, Paul will be all right. It's funny. But now let's okay, so I'm saying that this serpent is the devil. Well, how do we know that? Well let's look at a couple of verses here. Okay. Go to the next next one there, guy. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Okay, so we see again that same language used, serpent deceived Eve. That's what we're about to read in Genesis chapter 3. Now, are we still in the beginning? Well, yeah, we are, because it just said, the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your mind will. We're still in that beginning phase. We're still in that early part, but let's go to the next one. Revelation 12 verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So who is the serpent? The devil. Every time the serpent, there's never good things mentioned of serpents. Every time the serpent is mentioned in the Bible is always referring back to the devil. So who are we dealing with here? The Nakash. some can say that you can translate that word not just a snake, which it can be, or serpent, but it can also uh, be translated as lighted one. And what does he do? He transformed himself into an angel of light. Okay? Now let's, look, let's pick this up again, Genesis chapter 3, I'll read verse 1, we'll go on. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Question. Okay? The serpent was made, the Satan was made, the angels were made, right? So he was more cunning than anything else that was on the earth. Fair? All made. He said to the woman, has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Is that what God said? Not exactly. He said, you should not eat it, lest you die. Never said anything about touching it. Put her own spin on it. Then the serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Now look at that. What made her fall? She was tempted by the serpent. But look what it says here: that it was pleasant to the eyes, it was desirable to make one wise. And so because of that, and it was good for food. Because of that, she took and ate. That's how sin is, right? It looks good. It'll feel good. I don't think I'll do it anyway. Let's go on. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Why weren't they concerned with that before? Is because they were covered in the light of God. Their eyes were open to the physical world now. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Why was the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day? He did not have an appointment. Okay, He was always there. He was wa- this is where God was. He didn't come down from heaven at 3.30 in the afternoon. This is where he was. Then the Lord God called Adam and said, And where are you? And he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. So he blamed his wife, right? Makes sense. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Now watch this. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle. More than every beast of the field. On your belly you should go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now look at the other language in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. He says, I cut you down to the ground. It's that same sort of language. Okay? You ever heard somebody gets cut them down on the knees? That kind of language? They they bite their nose despite their face. It's a euphemism being used here. I've cut you down. You were here, now I've brought you down to where you belong because of this. But watch what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Some versions say he will crush your head. What is this ultimately talking about? You've got the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman being Jesus. He is the one that will crush the head of the serpent. So how do we know that this isn't a snake? Like just slithering around all of that. Like you see in all the movies and all the books. Because there's no snake that could perform this. He tempted. In his heart, he said, I will ascend. I will. I will do this. But it wasn't until the moment in which he acted on it that he is thrown out of Eden. And man sin and thus bringing death into the world. And all the other things that go with this. You see, at that point, he gets thrown out of Eden with man. And they put a cherub and a flaming sword to guard the entrance to Eden. They can no longer get in it. You see how that fits with Ezekiel. With the rest of scripture as the only time in the Bible that tells us anything about Satan actually falling in the timeline. What day was that on? It may have been day 8. It couldn't have been too long. I don't know for sure. But what I do know, guys, is that let me tell you something. If you're out there and you're walking through, if you've got a little orchard and you're walking through the trees and a snake rolls up to you and starts talking, that would be weird. Okay? You notice how she was not taken aback by this talking serpent. It's almost as if she saw him all the time as an anointed cherub on the mountain of God. She was not taken aback. This is why I say that this is the moment that we see Satan fall and we see man fall at the same time. And this is the first moment that we will see God mention that there is a Savior that's going to come. Because he will take animals, take cloaks of skin from them, sacrifice them, and cover Adam and Eve. And from that moment, they're put out of the garden. Now the work that they have to perform becomes hard. You guys following me? You see, this is why it's so important that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, and we allow Scripture to be our guide, because there's lots of fanciful ideas out there. And a lot of people say, well, we just can't know. Well, I think we can And I think this is where we get it. This is why I stand on this. Now, I'll tell you, I am in the minority on this. A lot of people either won't accept this. I had a conversation with somebody about three months ago about this idea. And um, they're like, you know, well, give me scripture and verse. So I did. And he said, oh, nope, that's not what it says there. And I'm like, well, that is exactly what it says there. You know, so, guys, we're just trying to be biblically accurate is all we're trying to do. Does it really matter in your life when Satan fell? No. You know what really matters more so in your life is when he was defeated. And he was defeated at the cross. That's what matters. But we want to be consistent and understand the scriptures. Because guess what, guys? We have authority over this guy. He tempted Eve. Adam chose to follow his wife. He laid down his life for her. Right? That's why the Bible says that men should lay down their lives for their wives. That's why Christ laid down his life for his bride. The same thing. But we have authority over him. And we don't have to put up with the nonsense. Because he is defeated And that is what you're going to see in the next few.